Church, has it been good to have young people up here leading us in worship? I think it's been awesome, and it's not going to stop, because guess what? We have a young person that's going to come and give their testimony to us. Now, I'm going to have you clap for them in just a second. I just want you to recognize, like, it's challenging to get up here and talk to people. And I imagine that if I asked a bunch of you adults if you'd like to come do this, you wouldn't want to do it right now. So Eli Lum is a senior uh, in our high school program. He's about to graduate from high school. He's going to go off to college this fall, and I'm going to let him tell that story to you. Uh, But he is thinking about pursuing ministry. And so this is one step, is getting in front of a congregation that loves you, supports you, and wants to encourage you in the way that God's moving in your life. Amen? And so we're going to encourage Eli as he comes by giving him a huge round of applause to say, we love you, we support you, this is going to be awesome. So come on, Eli. So I woke up with a cold uh, the past few days, so I apologize if my voice is weak. But um, like Pastor Dustin said, my name is Elijah Lum. I am an NYI representative for both our local and district council, and today I've been given the opportunity to share with you guys uh, my testimony. So this is my first time sharing my testimony. So yeah, I grew up in a Nazarene church in Virginia, where I spent most of Sunday school memorizing Bible passages, singing Bible songs, and watching cartoons reenacting Bible stories. My mother is an ordained pastor, so I've been attending the Nazarene church for as long as I can remember. It's important to note that I did not really understand what denominations were or even what theological values our Nazarene doctrines hold. As a little kid, I knew that God had sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins, but that's about it. I did not comprehend the idea that I needed to fully give my life over to God for him to thoroughly work through me. During my elementary school years, I joined Awana in Virginia. For those of you who do not know what Awana is, it's kind of like a Bible school where you learn Bible passages, memorize them, and it's and tell them to your Awana leader in order to rank up. Awana really exposed me to the various Bible stories and helped me understand God's love and character. I was taken out of school after my third grade year and was placed into a homeschooling co-op called Classical Conversations. I didn't know it at the time, but homeschooling was probably the best decision my parents could have done for my faith. In 2015, during my middle school years, I moved here to New York. I continued with Classical Conversations and joined uh, Calvary Community Church of the Nazarene. During that same time, I joined a Bible, Bible quizzing homeschool group where I studied scripture, memorized verses, and did meets with other Bible quizzing clubs. I knew a ton of scripture, but I still didn't truly understand what it meant to give my life over to God. I continued to attend church and grew deeper in my faith. I was baptized and gave my life over to God. I truly believe that God died for my sins. I never really had an aha moment in my faith when God showed up in my life because for as long as I've known, I felt God beside me. I knew he was there, and I knew that I needed to give my life over to God. When I was old enough, I began attending youth group and made multiple friends. I don't remember much of the earlier years of me attending youth group, but the most recent I remember is NYC 2019. NYC 2019 was when God really overpowered me with his presence. I remember vividly all of the pastor's messages and the testimonies of the speakers. 
I remember the worship team lifting up their hands in worship and 9,000 students all joining as one voice. I remember the small groups that helped answer questions we had the mess, excuse me. I remember the small groups that helped answer questions we had about the message we had recently received. I made some really great memories with friends, but most importantly, I felt a calling from God to explore deeper into my faith. 2019 was the year before COVID hit. I had no clue that I was about to lose some of most of my friendships. I did not even realize how much harder it would be for me to grow deeper in my faith during the pandemic. When we came back from NYC 2019, you could say that most people were coming off of a spiritual high. I wanted to have the feeling that I felt in the stadium with 9,000 other students forever, but unfortunately, our faith doesn't work that way. After NYC, I started having questions like, now what? I felt somewhat lost in the whole Christian world. I started questioning my faith and did not know what the next steps were. I continued trying to pursue my faith and pursued my friendships during youth group. I decided in my freshman year, 2019 to 2020, to try out public high school. I transitioned from being homeschooled and surrounded by only Christians to a secular environment. For personal reasons, I decided it was best to leave high school and went, I went back to homeschooling. I was almost done with my freshman year when COVID hit. I lost most of my friends during the two years of COVID lockdown, mostly because of the lack of connection. I felt alone, but I didn't stray away from my faith. God was always in my mind, but you could argue that my mind wasn't really focused on him. Youth group was canceled, the church messages were virtual, and none of my friends seemed to prioritize church anymore. I soon lost all connection with the people I used to share my faith with, and I felt alone, but I knew God had a plan no matter how hard things were going to get. During my junior year of high school, when everything seemed to go back to somewhat normal, I started pursuing my faith in God and put him in the forefront of my mind. Earlier, I said continuing classical conversations was one of the best things that could have happened for my faith. Well, now I had grown up with the same classmates for over six years, and this year, we were all heavily interested in the theology course we were taking this semester. This is when I found out what denominations were and how most of my classmates differed theologically. I learned that most of my classmates were reformed-minded and often had to support our Wesleyan viewpoint. Every time I got home, I would ask my parents a question regarding our Nazarene doctrines. Little did I know that each week I was not only growing deeper in my faith, but also in our Nazarene doctrines. So that brings me to today. I'm currently in my senior year of high school, and yes, my classmates still discuss our theological differences. I'm currently writing a 12-page paper about John Wesley's theology and contrasting it with John Calvin. This is my senior thesis that I will need to defend on the last day of school. This brings me to the final point I want to discuss. For the past few years, I felt a calling to ministry. I just recently figured out this calling, but ever since NYC 2019, I felt a feeling to dive deeper into studying God's character, and I felt a calling to share that with other people who don't quite know who God is. It is because of my theological differences and my realization of others' different understanding of God's character that I've decided to attend Northwest Northwest Nazarene University and hopes to become an ordained Nazarene pastor. Please pray for me as I set out on this journey and discover God's call in my life. I'm pursuing a new life in Christ and know that God will guide me along the way. He did good. <laughs> you did good. I think it's, I, I don't actually know that I need to say much um, because I think it's, it speaks a lot to why we have church right now, that you have a young person standing up here 
one willing to share his own life with you. Uh, Think of how guarded we are in our society. And not just sharing his life, but also talking about pursuing God and wanting to be a pastor. I think it says a lot about what God's doing in our church. But I do need to probably preach since that's what I get paid for. So, (laughs) I was thinking about this message today. Um, I knew Eli, what Eli was going to uh, be saying, and I also knew what the text was. We'll be in John chapter 11 today, uh, which is the story of Lazarus. I'm not going to take a lot of time to read all the verses uh, because, again, as with John's stories, there are a lot of verses to this story. Last week, I walked you through every single one of them. I'm not going to do that this week, so I'm going to encourage you to, if you have your Bible, just mark John chapter 11. Keep it open. We're going to refer to a few verses along the way, but you'll probably want to read this passage if you haven't ever read it or it's been a while. I've been thinking about Eli's story, thinking about Lazarus, and I've been thinking about our young people. My message today is really geared towards our college and teenagers. The rest of you are allowed to listen in, and I think it will speak to you too, but I've really been trying to wrestle with what does it mean to have young people in our service and for their pastor to preach a message geared towards them. And I've felt led to start with these words. The world is not an easy place. And the Christian faith is not some sort of magic that keeps all the bad things from happening to us. The world is not an easy place. And the Christian faith is not some kind of magic that keeps all of the bad things from happening to us. So young people... The truth of the matter is you're going to experience or have already experienced hard things in this world. And we're going to wrestle with what does it mean to know that suffering or coming to the crossroads of suffering and faith where these two things meet. What does it mean for us to be the people of God, to be disciples when we're not protected, when we're not guaranteed that bad things won't happen to us? John chapter 11 is the story of Lazarus. Lazarus is sick at the beginning of this chapter. And early on in verse 3, we're told that his sisters, Mary and Martha, send to Jesus word that your friend, the one whom you love, the text says. It doesn't even name him as Lazarus. We're given that that introduction in verse 1, but when the sisters send the message to Jesus, it only says this, the one whom you love is sick. They don't even need to name their brother, just the one whom you love. Clearly, we should not read this story as about Jesus and a person that he doesn't really care about then, right? However, Jesus does something really interesting because he gets this message from the sisters about the one whom he loves, Lazarus, and the text specifically tells us that he waits two days to go to the family in Bethany. Why? 
Why does Jesus wait two whole days? Why doesn't he pack up his bags and take his disciples immediately to head off to Bethany to go to the one that he loves, the one Lazarus who is so sick that the sisters have sent word to Jesus? We could hear this as a story about Jesus being dispassionate, not caring. Why, why does he wait? Well, because he doesn't really care about Lazarus. But it's pretty hard to make that argument when we're told from the very beginning, this is the one you love, right? I don't think we should read this text as if Jesus is dispassionate. But young people, I also don't think that you should hear this as Jesus having preference over this one versus all of others. In fact, one of the ways that I think we can read this text is for you, if you have your Bible with you, to open it up. In verse 3, Lord, the one you love is sick. What if you just wrote your name right next to that verse? What if you're the one that Jesus loves? In other words, I don't think that we should read this text as if Lazarus is the only person that Jesus loves. Oh, he's, he's the apex. He's, he's Jesus's most loved person. That's not what the text is trying to tell us. But the text wants us to understand because Jesus is going to delay two days. And in those two days, Lazarus is going to die. That this doesn't come down to the fact that Jesus doesn't love this man. He does. Young people, in the midst of the bad things of life, it is easy for us to lose sight of the fact that God loves us. We begin to question it. We begin to wonder. We we begin to doubt it. In fact, some people will say, well, doesn't that prove that God doesn't care about you? Or they'll even go even further and say, doesn't that prove that there isn't a God at all? And I think this text is challenging us to think differently about that. Because from the very beginning, even though the circumstances are hard and there's no denying it, there is a man that is about to die. And there are two sisters that are heartbroken about this. The text clearly wants us to understand that what is happening is all based on the love of Jesus. Jesus loves Lazarus. Jesus loves Mary. He loves Martha. There's no question about that as we read the text. He loves this man and young people. All of us. There's no question, if we're paying attention to the testimony of Scripture, that Jesus Christ loves us. Even though we may be going through some really challenging circumstances, even though we might be experiencing heartache upon heartache, that is not a signifier to us if we're paying attention to Scripture. That it is a sign to us that God doesn't love us. No, God loves Lazarus. Jesus loves him. Friends, he loves you. Each of you. Little ones. Our kids, he loves you. Teenagers, he loves you. Our adults, he loves you. And on some level, I think Martha understands this. She knows it up here. But she's grieving in her heart, isn't she? Because in the two days that Jesus doesn't come... 
her brother dies. And she comes out to meet Jesus. She hears that he's coming. And in verse 21, we hear these words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, God will give you whatever you ask. One commentator I was reading says that this is where Martha berates Jesus. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't really know that that's what she's doing here, is berating Jesus, scolding him passionately. But sometimes when we're reading scripture, it's hard to know what the tone is, isn't it? We see these words printed here, and, and we're only given little tiny snapshots of what's going on, and so it's hard to know exactly, but we do know this for a fact. Martha is disappointed. She's grieving. She knows that Jesus had the potential to heal him. She had followed him. She had been observing his life. She knew who Jesus was. She was part of the, the extended family that, that would follow Jesus around. She knew Jesus. And she knew that Jesus had the potential to heal her brother. This is why they send word in the first place. So when she comes to Jesus, I don't know that she berates him, but she's certainly questioning him. And even if there was some anger in her voice when she questions Jesus, would that be wrong? Young people, what do you think? When bad things happen in your life, should you bite your lip and not vocalize your pain, your anger, your frustration, your disappointment to God because that's not the holy thing to do? Should we just bite our lip and pretend like all is well? I don't think that's what Martha does here. I think she is expressing heartache to Jesus. I think she is expressing disappointment to Jesus. And guess what? Jesus doesn't respond to her negatively, does he? He doesn't, he doesn't berate her. How dare you speak to me this way? Do you know who I am? I am God incarnate. I'm the second person of the Trinity. I am Jesus Christ. How dare you speak to me this way? We have no recording of that in Scripture, do we? Because that's not how Jesus responds to us when we are honest with him. The Psalms time and time again show us that we can be honest with God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus is going to vocalize those very words from Psalm 22 on the cross in just a little bit. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think there's a bit of that in this exchange between Martha and Jesus. Jesus, if only, if only you had come, if only you were here then my brother would be saved. It's interesting that she says in, in verse 21, if you had been here. It's a statement that is both one that, that, that shows that she's grieving. I've lost my brother, Jesus. You've come a little late, haven't you, to the party? But it's also one that also emphasizes that she's still hopeful about Jesus. 
She doesn't walk away from Jesus. She doesn't give up on Jesus. In her loss, she doesn't reevaluate who she thinks he is. She's disappointed and still she believes. Young people, I think it's easy to assume that when life goes wrong for us, for us to assume that God doesn't care, that God isn't interested in us. And that's not the path that Martha takes here, is it? She speaks honestly to Jesus. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. In other words, she still sees Jesus as the Messiah, the Savior. There's something still radically different about this man. And even though he has disappointed me by not showing up to save my brother, I still believe in him. She testifies to this. And I wonder what it would be like for us as a church to understand that Christianity isn't magic that covers over us and protects us from all the bad things in this world, but Christianity can help us. Our faith can actually help us to enter into these heartaches and these places of brokenness to understand that our faith can transcend these moments and these circumstances and that they don't have to completely define us, but God can transcend them in the moment. In fact, Jesus wants to transcend it in Martha's life and she just doesn't understand it. Jesus didn't show up in her time. Her brother dies. She doesn't understand that God's time and her time don't always align. You might be thinking that verse 22, the verse I just read, is hinting that she understands that Jesus is there to resurrect her brother. But let me tell you, that's not what she's thinking at all. That is nowhere on the horizon for her. Because like every good Jew in this time, they would have believed in the final resurrection, unless you were a Sadducee, because they didn't believe in an afterlife. But everybody else, all other good Jews, believed in a final resurrection. She speaks about this. At the end of time, when everything is all done and God is about to finish all of this project, there is going to be a final resurrection that is going to help usher in the new heaven and new earth, and there are going to be a judgment. And that's how it all ends, and we move into eternity. Every good Jew believed this. She did not understand that Jesus, who just is going to respond to her to say that I am the resurrection and the life in verse 25. He does, she does not understand that something is happening in front of her right then and there that's going to change her thinking about this. She doesn't understand it yet. And the reason we know she doesn't understand it yet is because of verse 39. Jesus, after speaking with Martha and then calling Mary to come and speaks to Mary, he then transitions to move to the tomb. And he asks for the stone to be rolled back. And at this point, this is what Martha says, But Lord, by, the time there is, by this time there is a bad odor, for he has been there for four days. So what you need to understand is when she is talking to Jesus, before we get to the tomb, she has in nowhere in her mind at all, any thought at all, that Jesus is coming to raise her brother from the dead. That's not what she's thinking. But she still believes in Jesus. She still believes that he has the ability to do something amazing. 
If only he had just shown up on time. Friends, in the face of disappointment and loss, Jesus shows up. Did you hear me, church? In the face of disappointment and loss, Jesus shows up. And I want you to notice how careful the text is to tell us how Jesus responds when he shows up. Teenagers, the shortest verse in Scripture. You should have it memorized. John chapter 11, verse 35 is what? <laughs> Jesus wept. <laughs> the easiest verse to memorize. John eleven thirty five. Kids, did you get it? Jesus wept. We got it, right? Memorized it. Jesus wept. If I had, well, I have my Bible. If you have your Bible, I would underline that. Because again, the text is trying to tell us very clearly that Jesus is not showing up as if he's some sort of robot, untouched by everything. He's not showing up as if he's dispassionate and not caring. Jesus shows up. He listens to Martha. He hears her disappointment. He speaks of resurrection. She doesn't understand it. He goes to the tomb and he weeps. And it's not just John chapter 11, verse 35. It's also John 11, verse 38, which says, Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. In other words, friends, I'm trying to get you to understand that something bad has happened. There's no denying it. A man has died. And it's a man that Jesus loves. And he is deeply moved by this. He's moved not only to speak to the sisters and to, to hear the heartache that they have, but he loves Lazarus. So he moves through this scene and he weeps and he's deeply disturbed. Young people, how often have you wondered, does anyone know what I'm feeling? Can anyone know how I'm hurting? I think if we're listening to the text, then what we want to say to you is, yeah, there's at least one person, Jesus. He knows. He knows because he wants to show up in our lives. That's what he does in this text. He shows up. And what does he do when he shows up? He weeps. He's deeply disturbed. Friends, I think he wants to show up in our heartache and in our brokenness, in our disappointments of life, and he wants to come alongside of us, and he wants to weep for us and with us. But it's not just this. We've all, or I, I hope we've all experienced in heartache and brokenness and disappointment the joy that can come with just another person coming alongside of us and sitting with us, grieving with us, just being present with us so that we know we're not doing it on our own. Hopefully, we've experienced that. But that's not all that Jesus is offering here because we got to go back to verse 25. Jesus does show up. Jesus grieves with the people. But then he says these words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live 
even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life, he says. I am. I am. You know, John likes the I am statements. (laughs) They come up a lot in his gospel. Why? Because every time you hear Jesus say, I am, fill in the blank, the bread, the living water, here, the resurrection and the life. I am the good shepherd, he'll say. What are we supposed to hear? We're supposed to go all the way back to the Exodus story where Moses comes to the burning bush and God reveals his holy name to him, Yahweh, which means I am who I am. Every time Jesus utters an I am statement in John's gospel, he's wanting us to connect these stories. What is he saying to us? That, friends, it's not just a man that has come to grieve with the sisters. It's not just a man that has come to grieve over the death of his friend Lazarus. It is I am. Did you hear me? It's I am. It's God Almighty that's come in the person of Jesus Christ to enter into our heartache, our brokenness, our suffering, and to grieve with us, to be deeply moved with us. It's God Almighty that's shown up. I am the resurrection and the life, says Jesus. When God shows up in our hurts, new life can begin to spring forth. The despair of loss can be replaced with the hope for something new. Death can become life. Now, of course, I don't want us to walk away from this passage thinking that, well, what we're guaranteed if we have perfect faith that we'll never die, that's not what this text is trying to tell us, is it? Because I have some really unfortunate news, young people. Lazarus was going to die later on, too. He dies twice. He dies here, and then he's going to die later. Because his resurrection isn't actually the resurrection that Jesus has. It's a resuscitation. It's a bringing back to life. But he's going to be resurrected in this circumstance, being brought back to life. He's brought back in just a human body, not the resurrected form that Jesus brings to us at Easter. So he's going to die again. The text isn't trying to tell us that if we just have perfect faith, then we're always going to experience life in the sense of never death is going to happen. But what the text is trying to tell us is that in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the brokenness, in the midst of the disappointments of life, which will come to us? Who's going to show up? Jesus. And Jesus cares. He's going to weep with us. He's going to grieve with us. And friends, when the I am shows up and we're open to it, new life can happen where we think there may never be life again. And some of us older ones in here know what I'm talking about, don't you? You've experienced it. Young people, I hope that you haven't experienced a lot of heartache and brokenness in your life. I hope that you have been guarded and protected But I just know that the world is is a tough place. 
And there are going to be times where you're going to face this reality that something is happening that I do not like, and Jesus wants to meet you there, in it, and transform you by experiencing it. In 2010, I had the opportunity to be in Haiti three times in one calendar year. I wasn't planning on this, it just happened. Two of them were intentional, the third wasn't. Uh, I'd been on a scouting trip with a, another pastor friend, and we decided that Haiti was the place that we were going to take teenagers from our youth groups in Central California. We went in November of t- 2009 to do our first mission trip, a combined district mission trip with youth groups, and we had an amazing time of building a church that had been destroyed in a 2016 uh, tropical storm. In January of 2010 is when the earthquake struck Port-au-Prince. And my friend Jason and I were called by the Church of the Nazarene to come and to help. And what our job was, was to come and just to gather stories. And it was devastating to fly into Port-au-Prince, which I had been there just two months earlier with youth, and we'd had an amazing time, this amazing experience. And one of the the difficulties that I had a hard time understanding was just the enormity of the situation. Everywhere you looked, everywhere in Port-au-Prince, population of roughly three million people, just buildings pancaked, concrete buildings everywhere, pancaked. And it just is overwhelming, and you don't know how to process it. One thing that I do remember, though, is that two months earlier, I was in a grocery store that was right around the corner from the seminary where we had to pick up our final supplies before we headed north to the church. And that grocery store was complete rubble. It was a tomb at this point. I was in the midst of trying to process all this grief, all this death, uh, and my responsibility was to travel to hear stories of pastors. What happened? What happened in your church? So it was just bad story after bad story. I traveled to the south on one of these trips, and we went into the mountain area about two hours outside of Port-au-Prince, and we went into a community where they had had a church of the Nazarene just built by a work and witness team uh, that year. And you need to understand, we love our church facility, don't we? But in, in the poorer regions of our world, church facilities are much more than just places of worship. They're schools. They're often places where you get clean water. In other words, they become the hub of the community. And so they had great pride in this, this new church. It had been built uh, by Work and Witness team and the community working together, painted, wood pews created. All of it was there. And we walked in and it was all cracked. And they were so scared to walk into it that they wouldn't worship it anymore. So we were gathering stories. Before we left, the pastor called us over to the side and he said, oh, I want to give you something. So he sent his young, young son up a tree and it was sort of like a grapefruit tree and his son cut down all these grapefruits and threw them in a bag and brought them down to us. And he said, for the people of Port-au-Prince. And I got to be honest with you at the moment, I just kind of like, okay. You understand that like nearly a million people are dead and this grapefruit's not going to do anything, right? I think about that. Here this man had lost his church. He'd lost a lot. 
And in the face of this enormity of death and destruction, what does he believe? That God can do something with some grapefruit. I don't know if you hear it the same way that I do, but I hear that man teaching me what resurrection looks like in the face of death. I don't have all the answers for all of the enormous problems of this world, but I believe in a God that can take grapefruit and do something miraculous with it. He can take divorce and do something miraculous with it. He can take death and do something miraculous with it. He can take a job loss and do something miraculous with it because when the great I am enters into our heartache and our loss, he can do so much more than I could ever imagine or even hope, much like Martha in this story. She had no idea. And Jesus shows up and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And her world is about to be changed, isn't it? I wonder about our world. The praise team's going to come forward. And we're going to end this morning by coming to the table. It's Jesus's table. It's not mine. It's not Calvary's table. It's an extension of his table. And he's inviting us, the one that declares to us, I am the resurrection and the life, wants to offer you grace today. So did you come in here this morning hurting, grieving, suffering loss, disappointment? Who's going to meet us at the table? The one that has sacrificed his body enter into the suffering of this world, the one that has sacrificed his blood, given everything for us, he's the one that's going to give us grace to say, I'm with you. So much am I with you, I'm going to come inside of you. That's what the symbolism is for us. I'm so near to you, I'm as near as your heart to you. Friends, I don't know about you, but I need, I need that kind of Savior. How about you? I'm going to ask, we're going to have teenagers that are going to serve communion for us this morning. So if my teenage helpers would come up here, I'll remind us that there's no age limit to extend grace. Friends, you can receive grace from young people. That's what's being symbolized right here for us. It's receiving grace from them. And there's no age limit on receiving grace, is there? Young or old, you can come to the table if you want to receive grace. God, in these moments that we close worship, we don't want to too quickly run to what's happening after church. We want to linger for just a moment because we recognize that we are people in need of grace today. Would your grace wash over us? Would your grace break some of those hard edges of our lives this morning? Would your grace descend into those dark recesses of our lives that we've been afraid to show you, to reveal to you, maybe we've even been angry with you? Oh, would your grace come to us? We need Grace to be saved, grace to be sanctified. 
So would you fill us up, Jesus? It's in your name that we pray. Amen.